Funding for the Hinckley Report and this podcast is made possible in part by the Cleone Peterson Eccles Endowment Fund and AARP Utah. Thank you for listening to the Hinckley Report, your weekly political roundup. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Good evening and welcome to the Hinckley Report. I'm Jason Perry, director of the Hinckley Institute of Politics. Covering the week, we have Brian Carlson, anchor with ABC4 News, Kate Bradshaw, member of the Bountiful City Council, and Frank Pignanelli, political commentator and lobbyist with Foxley and Pignanelli. Thank you so much for being with us this evening. We have a lot going on in races in the country, but particularly here in the state of Utah. And I want to continue with the conversation we had last week about our Utah State Senate race, particularly when it comes to things like endorsements, which have been big this week, not just that they're coming, but who it is. And I want to set this context with, with you, Frank, first of all. Uh, we mentioned we mentioned our poll we've been reading about in the paper. This is the Deseret News and the Hinckley Institute of Politics between Senator Mike Lee and Evan McMullen. Uh, the race itself was at 36-34, but the one I want to talk about specifically is the 16% that said that they don't know. These are people said, I haven't made up my decision. And of that, uh, close to half of those were made up of people who identify as very liberal and those who identify as moderate Republicans. Uh, Frank, give us some sense of why you think that's the case. That's a pretty high number for two people we know pretty well. Well, it's a high number, and there's a lot going on in this race because you have the Democrats who refuse to make a nomination and instead are trying to support Evan McMullen. But when you, do, when you look at the Desert News poll and other polls, you see this fluidity that's going on there. And so you have this group of moderate Republicans who cannot make up their mind yet because they hear these things about Mike Lee, but they don't know who Evan McMullen is. So that's what you're going to start seeing the last several weeks is who is, who is Evan McMullen and can he satisfy the concerns that moderate Republicans have. The liberals are, in, are going to end up going with Evan McMullen for, for obvious reasons. So that's where the fight's going to be. Huh. So, okay, hit, hit that. Do, you, do you agree? I mean, is this, is this the battle for the moderate Republicans for both of these candidates? I think so, and I, I would count myself in that category. Um, it's, it, you know, you, we've had some longtime experience with Mike Lee. We've had a very tumultuous uh, two years. And if, if you're um, perhaps not inspired by some of his uh, views on Supreme Court justices, um, perhaps his uh, alignment with um, the former president, then you've kind of been thinking about what your options might be. You know, you're, you're willing to date other people. And perhaps one of those might be Evan McMullen. The challenge there is I am convinced that Evan McMullen is not Donald Trump and he's not Mike Lee. But I'm also unsure who he is. I, I find it interesting as, as someone whose contact information gets uh, in all of the lists that I haven't received very much from Evan McMullen. Well, you will now. Uh, let's not put my cell phone number at the bottom of the screen. But uh, it, it's, I, I am still wondering, what exactly are you? You're, you're not this, you're not that, but tell me what you are. Describe what, what kind of an animal you're going to be. I feel like it's actually the opposite because you have the biggest name that you could have coming out of the Democratic Party with a fighting shot to be able to take down Mike Lee. At least that's the way that Democrats look at it, else they wouldn't have endorsed an independent. They would have nominated someone from their own party. So having someone, of course, we may not know his policies, may not know his politics, but you get that all that money that's going into his campaign coming from outside sources shows you how strong of a feeling the Democratic Party here in Utah feels they have a chance to be able to win that election. So I would add this. Normally, endorsements don't make a difference. 
But this is an abnormal election year, all the way from nationally to locally. And there's the only way that the Democrats endorsed Evan McGowan is because of the endorsements of Ben McAdams and Jenny Wilson and others. Uh -huh. And so and what's happening, I think, with the Pence endorsement, normally that wouldn't, wouldn't play a role into it. But because this is an abnormal year, people are looking for more guidance than they normally would. Yeah. Let, let's talk about that, th those endorsements. And you mentioned uh, Mike Pence. And I, I want to read the endorsement that he gave for Senator Mike Lee this week. And Kate, love to get you, since you're kind of in this category, I'm curious if it resonates with you, because it seems like this might be, you might be one of the people that this is aimed towards. This is from Mike Pence uh, this week. My hope and my prayer is that when we reelect Senator Mike Lee here in Utah, He'll be part of a new Republican majority in the United States Senate to begin to steer our nation back to the policies that made our country strong and secure and prosperous during the Trump-Pence administration. As somebody who falls in that moderate camp, I don't think that's a necessarily helpful quote. One of the reasons why is it punts, uh, points back to the, the Trump-Pence administration. And if you're a moderate, if you're feeling unsure, part of what you're feeling unsure about is the kind of a very dramatic and traumatic way the Trump-Pence administration ended. And, and to reflect back to that time period that gave um, some of, of those moderate Republicans an icky feeling, I don't necessarily find to be a, a helpful reminder if I'm trying to forget that and focus on the future of the Republican Party. But I think so, if you're going back to, like say, like 2020, the reminder of Trump would have been toxic. Whereas now it's kind of we got some distance from January 6th insurrection and you have more of a picking that back up where Trump's followers and everyone who's backing him have some confidence now. Do you think so, in. Brian, though? Because we've we've had a summer with January 6th hearings to remind us um, we're likely because they postponed the next hearing going to see that at some point right probably about the time our ballots are mailing in Utah. And I don't think the Democrats are going to let us forget no, I don't think they will. And so that connection to well, me is still really relevant and important if you're looking at endorsements. I think the main thing is that you can feel the energy, so to speak, in the political realm, where you have uh, obviously the committee making their last kind of grand stand before the November election. The reason for that is because they feel that groundswell picking back up again. We have a lot more people just saying, you know what, time has passed, and maybe it wasn't as bad as, as President Trump is saying it wasn't. Hey, Frank, putting these two together, it's interesting, because if you go back to 2016, uh, when Mike Pence came to the state of Utah, and he, I mean, this was his phrase, he called on Republicans to come home. Is this a little bit of flavor of that in this? A absolutely. Because <clears throat> if you look at the numbers for the last elections, that the, a statewide Republican, like Mike Lee or Mitt Romney or Spencer Cox, they get around 60 to somewhere to 65 percent. Mike Lee needs to get those Republicans to come back home. And so you're going to start seeing more and more of you can't send somebody back there who's going to help Biden, who's going to help Schumer. You need somebody who's going to stand up against them. If I was Mike Lee, I'd run the, the ad from, you know, that, I mean, I'd run the ad with that movie, The All Good, you know, a, a, a Few Good Men, saying you need someone at that wall to fight against the Democrats. And that's exactly what Mike Pence is doing in his very mild Mike Pence way. But Mike Lee can't win this race unless the Republicans come home. And that's what Mike Pence is going to do. And I think you see more and more of those attempts say you need to come back home because he only needs a small sliver of them to, to start thinking more about 
what that means to have an independent back in Washington. I, I just want to hit the other side for just a moment, uh, Brian, because we, we talked about a couple of these endorsements. We got Mike Pence. But uh, as Frank mentioned a moment ago, there are some high-profile Democrats in Utah that are, are right behind Evan McMullen, uh, like Ben McAdams. We mentioned Jenny Wilson. I want to read this quote uh, from Ben McAdams when he was talking about Evan McMullen to see if that hits that moderate part as well, to see sort of in contradiction with what we might have seen uh, with the other one. This is what uh, we heard from Congress, former Congressman Ben McAdams. Both parties give too much power to the loudest and to the most radical voices. Both parties are beholden to big money, to millions from big corporate and to individual contributors. These politicians, they do everything based on how it affects their personal power and getting reelected. Let me tell you something. Mike Lee has changed. Utah changed and Utah needs and deserves better. I feel like there's, well, first of all, you have Ben McAdams is unplugged. I feel like you're getting him, once you're out of office at this point, you have a lot more clout, a lot more flexibility in what you can say and what you can do. So you, I think you're feeling that from McAdams. But I feel like that's the climate, isn't it? Where you have, we have to go strong on this side. Strong Republican values have to be, we have to go back to that, that coming home concept. Whereas Democrats say, look, we have to go all the way to this side, and that's, we never seem to find a way in between. The abortion issue is a good example of that, where we've gone from one extreme to the other. And then to think about how do we resolve this issue? We don't think about coming together. We think about, well, let's override the Supreme Court by adding more justices so we can get our side to win again. It just feels like that climate is getting more ingrained on either side. Uh -huh. Let's go to the climate for a second, because before I leave the Senate race, some things about this one, but it's bleeding into most of politics. And, you know, Frank, You've run and held office before, too. I want to talk about some of these commercials. I mean, Kate's not getting all the stuff in her mailbox, but we're watching a lot of stuff on TV, commercials. And we had a couple this week, uh, one in particular not, that is by a, a, an outside group. Talk about the, what, kind of what the rules are about that. What do candidates you know, have a responsibility to? Because one of them, Evan McMullen, said, Mike Lee, you have to condemn this one and take down this commercial. There are no rules. Other, because you have these super PACs that are created and they're not allowed to have any type of discussions with candidates and vice versa. So they can go off and do what they want, say what they want, and all the candidate can do is, if, if he or she wants, to disavow it. But these super PACs, and they get involved in the races, they raise money from across the country, and they come in and do these ads. And it's been my experience that they have lots of money, but the ads aren't very creative. They kind of use a, a cookie cutter, you know, the dark images and the, the deep voice and things like that. And they really don't spend time analyzing They'll, they'll say negative ads work, but they don't use, like, humor. They don't use something that really would get to somebody's vulnerabilities. What they're trying to do is these are money-making things. Now, I don't necessarily say that it's bad to have uh, their involvement because they're, they're issue-oriented, but they're not helping, in my opinion, analysis of what people need to know who to vote for. Go ahead, Kay. I, you know, I, there must be one person who does the deep, dark voiceover, and he, that person must be really raking it in for campaign season because it is this cookie cutter. I yeah. feel like when I've traveled um, this summer um, and watched local TV, it is, it is the same cookie cutter ad, and it's almost a caricature of what you expect in the fall. And it lacks, if you are an undecided, it lacks any of that nuance that helps you uh, start to make up your mind. Uh, Frank is absolutely right. The campaigns can't coordinate. So you, you, you can't necessarily demand that the super PAC take down their ad. Um, 
But I think it is universally, no matter where you fall on the political spectrum, nobody really likes these ads. Um, and I think everyone walks for a snack break or a bathroom break as soon as they come uh -huh. on. As an elected official, though, I mean, when you look th look at these commercials, it sounds like everyone's saying you, you feel like they're a little bit effective. And, and really, what do you think the responsibility is of a candidate? I think they're effective in fundraising, and I think that is their goal. Um, I think they are uh, they are they are designed to get the people who are already locked into their candidate, thinking this this person needs my help right now. I should open up my wallet. Mm -hmm. okay, Studies do ahead. show that negative ads can work, so uh -huh. that's that's why they use them. Uh -huh. one, one last thing on this, uh, Brian. I know you talked to so many people in in your position too that are looking at this race closely. Uh, is are, when we start seeing more and more of these commercials and more and more money coming from outside the state of Utah, is is that an indication of how close this race really is? Well, I feel like it's an indication that you have a different race this setup. I mean, obviously, when you look at just the money alone. I think if we remember the numbers, that was the any candidate prior to Mike Lee, any uh, challenger to Mike Lee, had only raised X amount of thousands of dollars. Now we're measuring that by record numbers in the millions. So that shows you, like, is there a shot? Is this going to work? This is the best shot so far, at least to have a tight race in that race. Yeah, so interesting. We'll continue to watch this race closely. Can we talk about another race that almost no one talks about, at least historically. And Frank, I know you, you since you watch elections so closely too, uh, the idea of who our clerk is, right? So the Salt Lake County clerk in particular, you know, uh, Sherry Swenson not going to continue. So we, we have a race there, but it's so interesting. We see uh, elected officials talk about, this is who I care about for clerk. Why is this something people are even talking about? Well, there was a, there was a, a story that was released a couple of days ago about how this clerk had made a bunch of statements, uh, in particular calling Democrats commies and Marxists, and he had some other stuff that he posted. He has denied that, but yet there's screenshots of these posts that he made. There's yeah. very inflammatory things. And to me, what this race demonstrates is two things. One is why we still have a delegate convention system because this person who's running who really has some very heated rhetoric came out of that he beat someone else inside the convention got the nomination that way then why are we electing the clerk and the auditor and the treasurer and all these things in these county races so he by him being this way he's asking all these questions and so now what's going to happen is is that because if he does get elected, the Democrats are going to say, wait a minute, this is a guy that called us commie and Marxist. How can we trust that person? And the Republicans, on the other hand, are going to say, is this who we really want to make sure? Because he wasn't necessarily elected because of his capabilities, but because of his rhetoric at a convention. Uh-huh. Kate, what, what can the clerk really do? I mean, is it, is it a big deal if you have a, a county clerk, for example, who's responsible for these elections that might be like an election denier? I think it is a big deal. Um, we all depend on a high level of trust in those offices. I've depended on it as a, as a candidate. I know Frank has depended on it as a candidate. I need to feel like I fairly won or I fairly lost. Um, and the public needs that as well. And I think it's important for us uh, to do that important transition of, of power that we do. Um, you know, there are a lot of cool transparency tools that the clerk's office and every and every county have um, to, you know, watch returns come in, to be able to track mm -hmm. your ballot and know when it's been counted. Um, uh, Salt Lake County, quite frankly, has one of the most robust and transparent clerk's office websites. I say that as a Davis County resident being slightly jealous watching primary returns that I was able to go to the Salt Lake County clerk's website and mm -hmm. drill down to the precinct level to see what the returns looked like and where things were coming in. Um, so the, our transparency tools are better than they've ever mm -hmm. been. Um, to, to, to view inside elections, if you really want to, I, I sometimes wonder if... Uh, uh, some of those that, that fall in that election denier camp are really well versed in what we do have. Yep. We had the governor mention that too. Yeah. 
Yeah, the governor mentioned this is that when we go back to when these all first started to pop up, the governor said, look, we've had this system in place for quite some time here in Utah, never had any issues. We've had the most fair and balanced election that we've had in our history of this state, to our knowledge. Well, as the Hinckley Institute has demonstrated a number of times, Utah has the gold standard of elections. So this individual is running as an, as an election denier. He's out of he's out of sync because mm -hmm. Utahns are comfortable with the mail-in system. They know that it's safe and secure. So to me, that's an outlying issue because and it really will not resonate in Utah. Okay, uh, let's get into some other uh, this other issue. sort of like the sleeper issue we talked about it on the show last week. A lot of people commented about about this, and I think we need to get to it just a little more to see what the implications are. This is this idea of ESG policies. We talked last week about how Utah's state treasurer took a hundred million dollars of state investment funds out of a firm that was really going through this idea of judging investments by their commitment to environmental, social, and governance. Big public utilities meeting this, this week. I think, Frank, you and Kate were both there. Let's, let's talk about what this was and why this is going to be one of those issues that's going to dominate some of our discussions during the session. Kate, you want to start with you? Sure. So there was a hearing in the Public Utilities uh, Energy and Technology Committee, um, a presentation of a, of a potential draft bill at the state level to deal with the issue. Incredibly interesting is that at the outset of the committee, the chairman, uh, Representative Carl Albrecht, announced that they, they knew that there were 35 different state-level bills on this topic, and the committee would maybe be doing some sifting to, to whittle that down, but that they expected legislation on this issue. Um, as, the, as the sponsor, Rex Ship presented, um, and then as some concerns were raised from, uh, in particular, the, uh, the tech community, um, uh, but also from um, the Utah Bankers mm -hmm. Association and those that are involved with our financial institutions, uh, there was a lot of push and pull. It was one of the uh, more uh, get some popcorn committee yeah. hearings of the interim uh, uh, season, um, and, and so you can tell that this is this is really a, a fraud issue, and, and in some ways it may uh, there may be something to the there there. Um, in some ways, it might be a little bit of one of those red meat issues. Yeah, Frank, please, and, and also describe very clearly what you think these bills are going to try to do. Well, it's interesting because you have the stuff that's happening at the national level, but you have a lot going on in the, in the local level, in the legislature, the chambers of commerce. Senator Hink has talked about how he applied for an insurance policy, and because he sells electrical equipment to a coal mine, he was denied a policy and had to get a new one because of ESG rules. So, and that was kind of mirrored in the committee. So you have a lot of personal stories about people being impacted from ESG. On the other hand, you have the financial services committee saying, we don't know if one of the borrowers or not is involved with ESG. How do we make that decision? So this isn't just between industry and environmental. Since you have debate going on in between industry mm -hmm. itself on a local level, and as 35 bills have been filed because the emotions on this are so great. You have businesses saying, don't tell us what to do. You have others saying, yes, we're being impacted by it. So it's going to be a, it's already happening. It's not, it's not even, we're not even to the session yet. There's yeah. already these high emotions. As a, we have business versus environmentalists. Is that the kind of thing? It's not really that necessarily anymore, not is it? That, you know, that's part of it. But you have businesses saying, they're trying to protect themselves, saying don't use ESG as a policy, yeah. and, you, and, and they're, they're lining that up against maybe technology and yeah. financial services, and the banks are saying, yeah, but I, don't hurt us because we don't know if someone's got ESG, and so huh. they have this friction going on. The, the bill that's being looked at would prevent any, any state, local, city, government from uh, using a bank that had uh, a policy towards ESG mm -hmm. or knew of anyone based upon their lending practices. So, I mean, it's getting really yeah. wild out there. Yeah. Jason, much like you just mentioned in the clerk's race, usually people aren't quite sure who their county clerk is. 
most of the time, the state is largely unaware who the state treasurer is. What usually people care about is, are we getting a return on our investments um, for our, uh, you know, pension retirement funds, for our rainy day funds, for those types of things? That's largely uh -huh. been what mattered. You know, are those funds secure? Have you invested them properly? Um, those that are running hedge funds or things like that, um, are they factoring whether there's expensive environmental controls that might be required? And and so. Um, now we do know who is running for state treasurer uh -huh. because he has made this a campaign issue. Mm -hmm. uh, I uh, am uh, tied uh, from a spousal perspective as someone who has a, a teacher pension in our state system, and I hope that we make the wisest financial decisions regardless because I'm looking forward to you know spending that several years in the future. And I think one of the things that's interesting about this is if you go to the ballot, right? And how many times have you gone to the ballot where the average regular person goes and fills out a ballot and they go, treasurer, I don't know who that is. And then talk about the ESG. Mm -hmm. I don't think they are aware of even the concept of what the topic is. So when you get into the thick of it, it's a huge deal, right? How banks handle this, how the money is diverted. I don't think the average person is yeah. even aware of this issue. Oh, and by the way, they're bringing China into this thing yes, and all true. sorts of stuff, too. About, so this, <clears throat> this is an issue that your listeners are going to be seeing more and more yeah. about. Yeah, to Brian's point, the people who are watching the Hinckley Report are going to know more about this than others, and they should because it's going to be big this session. I want to talk for just a moment about some very local things, uh, particularly um, with, with, with Senator Gene Davis for just a moment. I mentioned this because the, the Democratic Party this week called for an immediate and unconditional resignation of Gene Davis for uh, some sexual, uh, the, uh, the results of a sexual harassment investigation. But I want to bring this up, uh, and, and Kate, maybe you take this one first, because we had a student submit a question to us this week about this uh, this very announcement from the Democratic Party. Let's watch. This is Aya Hibben, a uh, student at the University of Utah. My name is Aya Hibben, and I'm a senior at the University of Utah studying political science and history. Recently, the Salt Lake Democratic Party called for Senator Gene Davis's immediate resignation after he was accused of sexual harassment. But Senator Gene Davis protested and refuses to resign. Do you think Senator Davis will resign? And what impact does this have on future victims who wish to report? Thank you. Well, to answer her first question, I don't think he intends to resign. I think he intends to finish out his, his term. Um, he, he's uh, actively up at the Hill. He was in committee hearings for September interim meetings. Um, so I think it is his intention to continue and, and finish out his term in December. Um, he's not on the ballot. He lost in his primary. So um, he wouldn't continue to serve in the next legislative session. Um, you know, as somebody who, who spends time up at the state capitol and, and was on staff at the state legislature, uh, this is not necessarily a, a new issue. Um, it is something that, that the women at the capitol are, are often aware of. Um, it's something that I, I'm hoping that the legislature continues to try and find ways to make sure that there is not a chilling effect. Um, there can be. Um, it is real. It, it does get talked about, especially by the women in the hallways. Um, and, and it's important because the legislature depends on interns. Yeah. They, they, we, they depend on them. They are the only staffer for many of the legislators um, um, that are up there. And we want um, our best and brightest students up there uh, of, of all genders, and we want them to feel comfortable being up there. Um, Frank and I sometimes have interns in our in our yeah. day jobs. Um, and and so that's that's an important thing to address. And I think the legislature knows they need to continue to work on how they make sure that everyone feels like it's uh, a safe working environment, a safe political environment mm -hmm. uh, for these these types of allegations. So, Frank, just one last question on this, though. The, the Democrats took quick and decisive action on this one. 
They did, and, and they needed to. And also, I would commend the legislature did, too. The Senate launched an investigation because I think the word wanted to go out that someone that wants to make these <coughs> excuse me, allegations has done so and is not attacked for doing that. Okay. Uh, oh, sorry. Brian, I want to get to one last issue because some polling we have done recently, Desert News and the Hinkley Institute politics, but, politics, but it comes to same-sex marriage. I just want to spend a couple of minutes on this because the numbers are very interesting. The question was this. Do you think marriages between same-sex couples should or should not be recognized by the law as valid with the same rights as traditional marriages? This is all the state of Utah. 72% of Utahns agreed with that statement. Isn't that wild how much that's changed over in just a short span of time? I mean, it was only a number of years ago when it was the complete opposite. Uh -huh. And we had, I can remember, I mean, I don't think 2004 was that long ago, and you had President Clinton. Obviously, this wasn't Clinton's time, but you had, I remember some of these images around that same time period where we were doing the, the Family uh, Act in Congress and signing off on that. The, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints Family Proclamation to the World was widely celebrated as a, oh, this is a great document, American values, family values. And now it's, that seems a little antiquated. It seems like Utahns kind of feel like, well, this is how it should be now. We need to be more open, more accepting. And that idea feels like there is a definite shift in the, not only overall yeah. thought for the country, but Utahns in particular. Well, to the country, Frank, I want to hear from this, but 70, uh, a recent Gallup poll put the whole country at 71% on the same question. Yeah, absolutely. What, it was interesting. Nothing has happened like this in the country. We had an issue flipped that quickly. Part of it was after 2004, when Karl Rove had all these initiatives going on to help Bush get reelected, and the issue was no longer being asked. And then over a period of about four or five years, what happened? is that gay and lesbian activists are very smart. They said, okay, we're getting out there. Because what they knew what would happen is this, and it did happen. Americans and Utahns, they'd hear them being de they would hear these gay and lesbian couples being demonized, but their personal experiences at the workplace, the neighborhood was, no, these are good people, I like them. This is not matching up. That's why it flipped four years later. It happened that way. It was a very good strategy that they had, and those that were opposed to it, they kept on demonizing these people, and it wasn't adding up. It's a good lesson on how you approach these policy issues. Okay, last 20 seconds, Kate. That cognitive dissonance made all the difference. Um, in 2004, I, I, I had a, a, a family connection, you know, one, one step removed that was so excited. You know, they were in there to, to the court's office in that little window when, when people were just desperate, and they were so excited to get married. They'd been together forever um, and raised kids together, and they were finally able. And I think seeing, seeing that, that people were interested in quickly forming families, made a big difference. Mm -hmm. Captain, last comment. Thank you so much for your insights this evening. Thank you for listening to the Hinkley Report. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help more people find out about it, please rate it and leave us a positive review.